you might have the wrong technology of the future, but you, you could also be too far ahead of the curve. If you're an early stage investor, it's great if you have this big vision, but if that company can't make money and ultimately exit, your venture fund's going to be shutting down pretty quickly. I'm James Kotecki, and you are listening to Kotecki on Tech. Do you ever wonder why this is the future that we got? Like, why is it that in 2018, you have Facebook, but not a flying car? Well, if watching hours of Shark Tank has taught me anything, it's that investors can have enormous influence over if and how innovation happens. And so today, I'm talking to an investor. Tim McLaughlin is a venture capitalist who can speak about tech investment from outside its Silicon Valley epicenter. He's a partner at Co-Founders Capital, based in the Research Triangle region of North Carolina. And this NCVC says that when it comes to technology funding, geography can be destiny. I've actually known Tim since elementary school. In our fourth grade play, I was Prince John, the lead villain, and he was Robin Hood, taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. This year, his firm took $21 million from investors and will be giving it to startups. Wonder where he got that idea. For my part, as Robin Hood's antagonist, I feel it's only right for me to kick off this interview with some conflict. I wanted to start with a provocative statement and uh, see if I can just get your reaction. Sure, yeah. Okay, so the provocative statement is, tech is broken and venture capitalists are to blame. What's your response? (laughs) Oh, okay. Tech is broken and venture capitalists are to blame. Well, so, you know, that's interesting because you look at certain stages where venture capital, venture capitalists come in and, and play, right? What companies that they're coming in and investing in, right? And one of the things I always think is interesting is, um, you know, there's this view that venture capitalists have to have these billion-dollar unicorn-type exits, right, so that they can be successful. So you look at a company like Facebook, how is Facebook so valuable? Facebook is so valuable because of the data, right, that they have. They weren't valuable because of their revenue model, right? They had no revenue model until, you know, a few years ago when they started allowing advertising and, and they went public. And now all of a sudden you have to have this, you know, you know, this multi, multi-billion dollar company um, to justify the returns for the venture capitalists and the money that they were putting in. So I, I'll protect ourselves and say our, we as venture capitalists or seed stage are not to blame. Um, because we can get a great return for our investors uh, without that multi-billion dollar type company, right? So what do I mean by that? So if we invest in a company at a million to two million dollar valuation and we're able to, that company's able to drive revenue, give good ROI and value to their end customers, we can turn around and sell that company for 10, 20, 50 million dollars and have a, you know, 5, 10, 20 X for our investors, mm-hmm. okay? But venture capitalists later on, if you start investing $200 million into a company that's at a $2 billion valuation, right, or a $1.8 billion valuation, and you take a 10% stake in that company, you need that company to exit for $10, $20, 30000000000 billion to get the kind of venture return that you want, okay? There's only certain ways to do that, and one of the ways to do that is have this massive data set and information on your, your customers. So, so really, it depends on the kind of exit I think that you're going to want. Um, in order to, uh, you know, to to understand kind of those, yeah. the, you know, the iffy things like Facebook and Uber and data breaches and all that stuff. 
thinking about the people who have invested in Uber in later stages when Uber was already prevalent in society uh, and, and what they kind of expect or need Uber to do in order to justify their investment. I mean, can you kind of draw a direct line there between Uber then pushing for really aggressive uh, technology developments and things like self-driving cars, which, of course, you know, if you push it too fast, you get incidents like what recently happened where one of the self-driving cars uh, tragically uh, sure. killed somebody. So and, and with Facebook as well, like, is it do these kind of pushes to behemoth status, the, the things that make us uncomfortable as a society when a tech company does it, can you look to. Uh, investors, especially late stage investors, is some of the motivation for why they needed to feel like they to take those risks or to make those aggressive moves. Well, um, I don't think it's just investors to blame. I, I would say that the the entrepreneurs or the CEOs or the, the board of directors of the of those companies are making the decision when they take that capital. There has to be a vision for how to how to get a good return for those investors. So jointly, there has to be a decision made. How are we going to get to that value? Uh, how are we going to create that value, right? And if you look at, you know, a company like if, if Uber's losing money, and I don't know what their, their recent, uh, you know, how they're doing right now, but if you look at Uber that's, that's burning cash, right, or losing money, um, and, uh, and you say, okay, well, we're probably not going to make uh, the kind of return and valuation for this company for our, these later stage investors. So how are we going to change our business model? And that could be a, a data model, right, which is very similar to what, mm-hmm. what Facebook did. So it's a joint decision, right? The board has sure. to approve the amount of money that the company's taking. The investors that are coming in are laying out a vision and a strategy for what they're investing in. So it's a joint decision for how they're, how they're trying to get to their end goal, right? This is what I'm talking about in terms of how technology is influenced by the investment decisions that are made at various stages of this process. Right. Yeah, I... I mean, so so you can raise capital on on a lot of different things, right? So it's certainly more of a West Coast versus East Coast kind of mentality. We always invest in companies that can cash flow, uh, become you know cash flow positive on our investment at at plant. Now that mm-hmm. doesn't always happen, but West Coast has more comfort around investing in a company that is just going to try to acquire to acquire users and acquire data, right? But doesn't have necessarily a clear uh, revenue model. So, so when you look at, you know, kind of clickbait or download bait or how many users can we get and how can we get them sticky on our product, there might not necessarily be a revenue model associated with it right now. And that revenue model that might not be coming for, for, you know, down for years to come. How do you explain the divide between East and West Coast? Like, why, why would it be geographically divided like that, especially in a global economy? Why is there a kind of a geographic right. divide based on who's doing what? Well, well, think. I mean, there's obviously access to a lot of talent, right? A lot of talented entrepreneurs and technical talent and everything in Silicon Valley. So if you're a, a Silicon Valley VC, well, where do you want to deploy your capital? Do you want to deploy your capital uh, close by where you have access to, you know, the, the management team? Uh, you can kind of keep closer tabs, right, on them. Or are you going to fly across the country and deploy a smaller amount of capital into a, a company on the East Coast where, you know, um, Maybe you don't have as much say, and maybe maybe to an area where there's not as much talent as there is in Silicon Valley, right? We have we certainly have a lot of you know I think per capita the triangle right is one of the best when it comes to to PhDs per capita living here, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have early stage you know startup tech talent uh, in the area. Um, we're, we're getting better, and we're able to you know the triangle is an easy place to recruit to, but 
if you look at the hub of where that talent is, it's in Silicon Valley. So, um, so I'd say, I'd say there's a geographic divide there. And if you also look, um, uh, to where the money's being deployed, where can these funds, where can these venture capital funds raise their capital from I'm trying to start new, um, venture capital funds in underserved markets, which I said the triangle would be, it's harder to raise a venture capital fund. I saw a company the other day and I was like, Hey, this company that you have, it's not a, it's, the company idea is good, right? You're just not in the right market for this type of company because you can't get the funding you need here to execute on your plan. And so I think there are pros and cons to that, right? We probably have a lower failure rate, but we have way less like huge exits around here, right? Because it's just, it gotta be a, you gotta take a different approach. And so I, I try to get the message across to the entrepreneurs. I'm like, you, you might not have a, your company might work. It's just, it's going to be very difficult to work here. You know, I guess it's just very different than where one might've thought we would be. If you were looking at the internet circa 1998 and you'd be like, by 2018, you know, everybody's working, uh, you know, remotely and it doesn't matter where anyone is. And the internet's just connected everybody. And the fact that it's still so geographically dependent and will probably remain so for the foreseeable future uh, I think is maybe a change in direction of what people thought the internet would do to the ability to start a business and to innovate with technology. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's just one of those things, right? LPs want to be close to their venture capital groups who want to be close to talent and want to be close to their companies. And I don't know. I mean, if you were dedicated to like really, you know, maximizing your virtual I don't know, presence, right? Maybe you could do it, but even our companies that are, that are close by just do better, right? Because you'll pop in and just ask a quick question versus, right. you know, having to set up a, a Skype call. Like, that that's kind of stuff matters. In 10 years, in 2028, will Silicon Valley still be the dominant geographic force uh, that it is today? Or will things be a little bit more spread out? I mean, people like Steve Case, formerly of AOL, talk about the rise of the rest, the idea that there should be kind of tech hubs more all over the country. But what you're describing is kind of a network effect and kind of a flywheel effect that kind of kind of keeps the, the dominance of Silicon Valley going. So how much longer do you think it'll last? I, I think it will last just because of, there's kind of that lag, right? So people are investing in a, in a venture capital fund and looking at the success of that 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 management team and that venture capital group from you know five or ten years ago, right? So whatever they're returning from that fund. Mm -hmm. So if they two x or three x or ten x, uh, you know their second fund, you may be looking at that track record for their their fit to decide whether you're going to invest in their fifth fund, right? If you're a big pension fund or endowment or something like that. So so I think there is going to be a lag, right? So they clearly have a head start, and it's not an easy thing to catch up on. But if you look at just simple supply and demand, right? So valuations let's take valuations for startup companies. Okay. In Silicon Valley, you can demand a higher valuation simply because there's more investors chasing a deal mm -hmm. in North, in North Carolina. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of investors. We can name all the early stage venture capital groups on one hand here locally. So there's not as many investors that are chasing that deal and simple supply and demand show you that the valuation for that company is going to be lower here. Right. One of the things we started to see is we started to see groups that originally their uh, fund focus and their thesis was to invest in Silicon Valley or in Boston or in New York. But what they've seen is that there's the valuations have gotten too high and their dollar goes so much further and gets them so much more equity in the company. If they invest outside of that area. So they're starting to turn to North Carolina or Austin um, or Colorado 
uh, you know, at some of these other kind of up, up and coming tech hubs and putting their money into those markets just because of their dollar goes a lot further. This is another interesting aspect of it because, you know, as Silicon Valley continues to be dominant, but maybe other places start to come up as well, it might change the nature of, again, what kinds of companies get funded, what kinds of technological innovations come into the marketplace. When you're evaluating an idea for a new innovation or a new technology or a new piece of software as an investor, what frameworks and beliefs are you using to judge that? Yeah, uh, well, you know what we do, what we do to kind of vet those ideas is we take it around and we talk to as many potential customers as, uh, as possible. You know, one of the, one of the things that, you know, you might have the wrong technology of the future, but you, you could also be too far ahead of the curve, right? So if you take, for example, some of the, uh, technologies we're trying to sell into, uh, hospital systems, right? And decision makers at large hospital systems, those technologies are only as good as the hospital's ability to integrate and get their um, their yeah. people, their physicians to, to adopt and use those technologies. But what you have to do is you have to make sure that the technology, the value props that the technology creates aligns with your customers and you go out and you try and sell these, right? And you hear what your customer's feedback is. But you also have to make sure that you're within the curve kind of as far as their ability to adopt that technology. Yeah. Uh, if you're an early stage investor and you, you know, it's great if you had this big vision, but if that company can't make money and ultimately exit, your 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 venture fund's going to be shutting down pretty quickly. Yeah, it's interesting because it kind of puts a different spin on the question of who's really driving the future of technology here. Is it the entrepreneurs? Is it the VCs who are actually putting up the money? And in many ways, no, it's actually just the demand function of whether customers are willing to pay for this stuff or not. And I guess that's kind of scary in a sense because it means that the people who are inventing this stuff don't necessarily know if what they're doing is going to work. But on the other hand, it's maybe it's a bit hopeful because it means that all of us kind of have a hand in shaping what actually gets developed and how it grows. Oh, I would certainly, I would certainly say that all, all of us customers, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, all kind of play a part because uh, you know we need we need um, our buyers, right, our consumers to uh, want to innovate, and if they if they don't want to innovate, right then uh, it's very, very hard for us to push, uh, push new technology. So I know we may have entrepreneurs listening to this, maybe some who would be interested in uh, getting funded uh, by co-founders capital. Uh, what's, what's something that you wish that entrepreneurs who pitched to you kind of understood, but they, they typically don't? Um, that they're too close to their um, company. And they have to have the ability to step back and clearly articulate what the value props are for their end customer to the investor. So um, every entrepreneur wants to get into their uh, technology and how it works. And we always say that the technology is just a function of time and money. We can get there, right? If we have the time and we have the money, we can build the technology. What needs to be there is the clear value props to your end paying customer, right? Or your end user, right? And I think sometimes uh, entrepreneurs get just fascinated with their own technology and don't, not that they don't understand it, but they have trouble clearly articulating those value props. Okay, so this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else that has come up in your mind as we've been talking or anything else you're dying to share with our audience that you want to say before we wrap things up? 
we talked before about how everyone kind of plays a part in, in this, um, you know, in building the community. It's not, or, or how innovative or how advanced or whatever this area, region, whatever is. And it's not just the part of um, the entrepreneurs creating new ideas. It's also the part of the venture capitalists, right? It's also the part of the corporations around here being willing, their willingness to innovate, to be beta customers, to maybe invest back in the community, um, the universities to invest in, uh, you know, adoption of new technologies and, and uh, help train their students with those innovative new ideas. If, if you can't find a beta customer that's willing to innovate, none of these companies are going to succeed. Tim McLaughlin is a partner at Co-Founders Capital. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, James. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give it a good rating and review. You've been listening to Kotecki on Tech, and I am James Kotecki.